Good evening. Okay, so here's the scenario. Two men are lost in the desert. They realize that they are close to death. They are losing hope of ever being rescued. One of the men begins to contemplate his life. He's convicted that he needs to make a change before he dies. He's afraid of spending eternity in hell. And so right there in that moment, he professes his faith in God and in Jesus. He vows to live for God for however long he has left on earth. He asks for forgiveness. Now all that's left for him is to be immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. But wait, there's no water. They're lost in a desert. What happens to this man? Does he spend eternity in hell simply because he couldn't be baptized? Here's another scenario. A man has been studying the Bible with his preacher for several weeks. After one study session, he goes home, but he cannot shake the lesson. He can't sleep. He tosses and turns as he considers what he and the preacher discussed. So he finally gets out of bed at 2 a.m. and he calls the preacher. Can you meet me at the church, he asks. I need to be baptized. And the preacher says, absolutely, I'll meet you there in 15 minutes. So the man hops in his car, but on his way to church to be immersed, he's hit by a drunk driver and killed. So does this man spend eternity away from the Heavenly Father? Here's a third scenario. A man is sitting in church listening to the preacher proclaim the gospel. The man is pricked to the heart. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God and he repents of his sins. He desires to be baptized. There's a creek behind the church building and that's where this man wants to be baptized. So as they make their way down to the creek, a tree limb breaks and falls on the man, killing him dead. Is this man lost for all eternity? I mean, if baptism is essential to salvation, then aren't we saying that this man will be lost forever because he died before he was baptized? So we've all heard such scenarios. Although there may be several variations, the common thread is this. What happens to a person who believes but dies before he can be baptized? And let's face it, all of these scenarios are presented in an effort to dismiss the notion that baptism is essential for salvation of the sinner. But what if? What if a person who believes in Jesus dies before he can be baptized? The first thing that we have to point out is that the question, as well as the various scenarios, are an appeal to emotion. They just are. These are scenarios that tug more at the heart than dive into Scripture. Here's the emotional plea. Surely you're not saying that God would send a good person to hell simply because they weren't baptized, are you? That's not what you're saying, is it? But what this person doesn't realize is that they are backing themselves into a corner with their own reasoning. They are forced to answer the same question and deal with the same scenarios just at a different point, right? For example, let's say that the man wandering in the desert is listening to his friends as he preaches the gospel to him. What if he dies just before he believes? What if the man who had the Bible study with his preacher is really calculating the cost and seriously considering what the Bible teaches about faith and repentance and baptism, but he dies just before the point of believing? What if the man walking down to the creek to get baptized never made it that far? What if instead he was sitting under a tree and listening to the words of the preacher and he was almost to the point of belief when a tree limb broke off the tree and landed on him, killing him dead? What if? Same scenarios, just at a different point. And what if I were to say, you mean to tell me that God is going to send that good person to hell just because he didn't have time to believe in Jesus? Think about it this way. What if the man roaming around in the desert or the guy studying with the preacher dies before he can recite the sinner's prayer? What if he dies just before he could let Jesus into his heart? What if the man sitting under the tree listening to the sermon dies before he can let Jesus into his heart? 
God's going to send him to hell for all eternity simply because he didn't do those things? You see, here's the bottom line. Emotions don't determine truth. Feelings cannot be our guide when it comes to matters of salvation. We consult God's Word, not our feelings. We appeal to Scripture, not emotion. As my good friend Steve Higginbotham has said, if a man dying before baptism is proof that baptism is not essential for salvation, then a man dying before he has faith in Jesus is proof that belief in Jesus is not essential for salvation. I mean, if not, why not? Now the question becomes, does God make exceptions? And he has in the past. David, for instance, should have been stoned for both the sin of murder and adultery, but he was spared. Scripture states that it's appointed for man to die once and then the, and then the judgment. That's Hebrews 9.27. But two people didn't. I would hope God's grace and mercy would be in full effect in scenarios such as the ones we've mentioned. But all I can know for sure is what the Bible says. So I can speculate about what God might or might not do in certain situations. I can play the what-if game all day, but ultimately, I'm going to land where the Word of God lands. It doesn't matter what heart-wrenching scenario I can come up with. What matters is what God has said. And God has made it crystal clear that baptism is essential for salvation. This isn't guesswork, and therefore, we can't bank on an exception. Now, in order to grasp the full meaning of our baptism, we need to go back to Jesus' baptism. So let's look at Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, where it reads, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, a couple of things to consider here. First of all, Jews didn't get baptized. I mean, why would they? They never conceived that they, the children of Abraham, would ever need to submit to baptism. Now, the Jews did believe in baptism and even used baptism, but only for those who came into Judaism from another faith. It only made sense that dirty, polluted converts would need to be cleansed of their sins, but Jews were not dirty, polluted converts. At least, that's not what they thought. They were the children of God. Why would they need to be baptized? So Jesus, the so-called Messiah, the Anointed One, submitting to baptism was odd, to say the least. Secondly, Jesus submitting to baptism was an identity thing. It was to identify with the believing remnant of Israel. Jesus didn't come to identify himself with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Instead, he came to identify with that believing remnant that were expecting the fulfillment of God's promises. But not only that, Jesus was also identifying with sinners. After all, the Jewish heads of state weren't going to do that. They weren't going to identify with the sinners. They had no use for sinners. Jesus' submission to baptism is his way of identifying with those who were in need of a Savior. He came to be their deliverer. He would be their substitute. Just as, is Israel, just as Israel needed to identify with a scapegoat and the scapegoat took on the sins of Israel when Aaron laid his hands upon, them, uh, upon it in Leviticus chapter 16, so Jesus identified himself as our scapegoat. He took our sins upon him. But there's even more. Jesus' baptism is meant to fit the larger narrative of Scripture and the big picture of the gospel. You can go back and you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 sometime in its entirety. And there Paul defines the gospel as the crucial events in the life of Jesus. 
Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and Christ appeared. But these events fit a larger narrative. It's the narrative proclamation of King Jesus. And the gospel is this as well. It's the story of Jesus, and that story completes the story of Israel. The word gospel in the first century would have been viewed as an announcement. It was to declare that Yahweh was king and that Caesar was not. So, just to rehash, the gospel is not the plan of salvation. We've talked about this recently. It is not a system of how people get saved. The announcement of the gospel results in people getting saved. You obey the gospel. But the gospel itself is the key events in the life of Jesus and how the story of Jesus completes the story of Israel and thus merges us into the story as well. As one author puts it, we are people of the story. And we, as people of the story, see the story of Jesus completing the story of Israel. So you've got to understand the bigger picture of the Bible and the gospel to understand everything that's surrounding the words that God spoke to Jesus at his baptism. And at the baptism of Jesus, we find two certainties. Number one, the certainty that he was indeed the chosen one of God. And number two, the certainty that the cross was in front of him. The moment that Jesus came up from the waters of the Jordan River was a glorious moment for sure, but it wasn't just that. God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, was not just a proud moment, it was a somber moment. Because in that moment, set before Jesus was the task and the only way to fulfill it. Our Lord knew that he was destined to be victorious. However, he also knew that the conquest had to include a cross. But there is something else happening at Jesus' baptism. And what's happening is a new exodus. The defining moment of Israel's existence was her exodus from Egypt. That's where it all began. God liberated his people by rescuing them from slavery and delivering them by a pilgrimage through the Red Sea. While the parting of the waters served as a means of salvation for Israel, those same waters served as a flood of wrath for Israel's pursuers. So after coming through the water, God's people find themselves in the wilderness facing trial and temptation. Well, what happened just after Jesus' baptism? What's the very next event in his life? The temptation, right? Have you ever noticed how Jesus' experience in the wilderness mirrors the Israelites' wilderness experience? In fighting the temptation from the devil, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.16, and Deuteronomy 6.13. These are clues as to what Jesus is experiencing. He's experiencing a second wilderness experience. This temptation story reveals that Jesus is the second Israel who goes through the 40-year test, except this time it's, it's not years, it's days. But there's one glaring difference between Jesus' experience and that of the Israelites. And what is it? Well, the difference is Jesus passed the test. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. The time of wandering for Israel ends on the banks of what river? That's right, the Jordan. And who takes the lead after Moses? Joshua does. And what is the Greek equivalent to Jesus? Joshua. Joshua leads Israel through more water and is tasked with driving out wicked nations before bringing the people to the land of promise where God might dwell with his people. All of Israel's water imagery rushes over Jesus at his baptism 
and as he journeys through the wilderness led by the Spirit. Jesus' baptism is an exodus. He is the new and better deliverer who has come to lead God's people out of bondage and into life and liberty and the pursuit of holiness. Now, many people ask the question, do I have to be baptized? I've heard that question a lot. And it's a question that is debated in religious circles. What role does baptism play in my salvation? Is it necessary? Isn't it just a work? The fact that Jesus did it and God was pleased with him for doing it should speak volumes to us. But add to that the fact that this is a huge part of the gospel story. Here's the deal. In order for Jesus to be our anointed priest and king, he couldn't just be God. He had to be human as well. And as you know, more, mortality is a part of humanity's makeup. We are all born with an expiration date. We are all terminal. The hardest part of life is death. So if God is going to take on flesh and blood, then mortality becomes a part of that flesh and blood. The fact that Jesus died and was buried emphasizes the fact that he shared in our mortality. The people of Israel referred to the burial of an individual as being gathered to their people or being gathered to their fathers. So for Israel, it was necessary for the Messiah to be gathered to his people in every way because the Messiah not only came to save the living, but also the dead. So the burial of Jesus was a way for him to identify with us. However, it's also a way for us to identify with him. And you think, well, how? How do we associate ourselves with the death and burial of Jesus? Through baptism, right? And not only do we identify with Jesus in baptism, we also identify with Israel as we too are delivered from bondage and the slavery of sin. And being buried with Jesus in baptism means that the dirt, the grave, the tomb, they no longer have any power over us. It's not our permanent destination. Death no longer has any claim over us. We've already been buried. That took place when we were buried with Jesus at baptism. But as awesome as all that is, burial can't be the end of the story. Jesus identifying with our burial and us identifying with his burial means very little if there's not a next step. Through the prophets, God promised that he would raise Israel from the dead. Of course, there seems to be a bit of metaphor or symbolism in these promises, but I don't believe that there's any doubt that men like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob believed in a bodily resurrection. Many first century Jews believed that on the last day, God would raise his people, Israel, from the dead. Jesus claimed to be the embodiment of Israel. He lived his life as a faithful Israelite and a faithful representative of Israel. He lived his whole life for his whole people, and he died on behalf of his whole people. So when God raised Jesus from the dead, God was keeping his promise to Israel. He was raising the faithful from the dead, and he starts with the most faithful, the one who offered himself as an atoning sacrifice. Not only that, every Raising up in Scripture, including Jesus' baptism, fits a theme and a structure that illustrates the character of God. Jeremiah was raised up out of the cistern. Daniel was raised up out of the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were raised up from the fiery furnace. Joseph was raised up out of the pit. The theme and structure is this. God delivers people from death. God keeps His promises. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will not leave those who are faithful to him in the tomb. He rescues people who put their faith in him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that God will do what he says. By raising up the Messiah, 
God has done exactly what he had promised to do from the very beginning. This raising up theme is a snapshot of what is to come. Anytime we read of a resurrection story in the Bible, we're getting a glimpse of what is to come. The death and resurrection of Lazarus, for instance, is a short synopsis of the bigger story. Jesus is using the resurrection of Lazarus as foreshadowing of what will take place three days after he himself is laid in the tomb. I mean, after all, if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no other resurrection. I know that sounds pitifully obvious, but all resurrection is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. And our baptism is actually foreshadowing of what is to come. We've been raised up and we will be raised up on the last day because we've been rescued. So, do I have to be baptized? My response would be, why do you ask? I mean, you do realize that no one in the New Testament was asking that question. No one. I mean, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter was giving that soul-stirring sermon, those people in the audience that were pricked to the heart asked, Brethren, what must we do to be saved? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And not one person responded with, Okay, I get repent, but do I really have to be baptized? No one ever debated the place of baptism in the salvation process. There wasn't this dichotomy of faith versus baptism. It was both. You get baptized because baptism is a response to faith. It's an expression of faith. No one was asking, do I have to be baptized? It's a silly question. Because when you understand the gospel story and how all the puzzle pieces fit together, you respond accordingly. You don't pick out one aspect and question it. You do like our first century brethren did, and you just do it. So here's one final scenario. Some refute the plain teaching of Mark 16, 16 in this manner. A person gets on the bus. They sit down and they wait to arrive at their destination. Everyone knows that all that's really necessary for one to arrive at their destination is getting on the bus. You know, the man or woman must sit or stand, but they're on the bus. So sitting might be more comfortable than standing, but it's not necessary that a person sit down in order to arrive at their destination. They're going to get there whether they sit or stand. Likewise, when Jesus stated, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned, he is saying that all that is really necessary in order to receive salvation is to believe in him. Being baptized is like taking a seat on the bus. It might provide you more comfort, but it's not necessary in order to arrive at your destination. You ever heard that explanation? But here's the problem with that illustration. If one is saved the very moment they believe in Jesus, then they are saved the very moment that they get on the bus, right? Once he gets on the bus, he's at his destination. But how does that make sense? This scenario blatantly ignores half of what Jesus said. You know, the religious world accepts one-verse theology on so many other issues, but then there's, when there's a, a clear-cut piece of Scripture such as Mark 16, 16, they attempt to explain it away or toss it aside or, or ignore it completely. And, and it's not just this verse. We don't practice one-verse theology when it comes to baptism. There are numerous passages that speak of its essential nature. I wish we would stop looking for the loopholes and simply obey the Word of God. Every individual who is sincere about being a Christ follower must ask themselves this question, am I going to take God at His word? Instead of trying to explain away a passage that may be difficult or, or one that goes against what I've always been taught, will I simply obey? Now granted, there are some teachings in the Bible that are difficult to buy into. Some lend themselves to wanting to help God out, so to speak. 
Jesus said, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. I wish there were other reasons. I wish there was more than one exception. But Jesus said there's only one. Jesus also said that we are to love our enemies. But I don't always want to love my enemies. So what? He didn't ask if you wanted to. He said do it. Jesus said, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, and, and he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. But, but come on, did Jesus really mean that you'd go to hell if you didn't get baptized? I mean, what about all the really sincere good people who love God, who love Jesus, but don't get baptized? I just know what it says. It's easy to agree with the Bible when the Bible agrees with you. What's difficult is trusting in God's Word and living out God's Word when it's tough. That's where the rubber meets the road in our faith journey. That's where you discover how dedicated you are to being a follower. It's easy to follow when the guidebook leads you in a direction that you're familiar with or comfortable with going anyway. It's a whole different story when following means going in a direction you would never choose. What's the ultimate goal here? Is it forgiveness of sins so that you can go to heaven? Well, sure. I mean, that's part of it anyway. But that shouldn't be all of it because that wasn't what it was all about for Jesus. For Christ, it was about sin and salvation in heaven. But do you know what it was about more than anything else? Above anything and everything else, it was about this. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. To hear those words from the Heavenly Father, to do the Father's will, to be about the Father's business, that was it. That was the mission. That was the ultimate goal. Is it ours? Above all else, are we striving to be Beloved children who please their Father. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for baptism. Thank you that we can express our faith in terms of repentance and confessing and being baptized and, 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 and producing fruit the rest of our lives as we seek to please you and live at the center of your will. Thank you that we have a response that we have a way, that we have a path that leads directly to you and that we can be with you for all eternity, not just now, but forever. And may we, God, seek to obey the gospel, not just once, but all the days of our lives. God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a great week. I love you all. God bless.